Welcome to Postscript. We just finished talking about Hannah and her sisters in our main episode. We talked about pretty much every major character in the ensemble except for Hannah's parents, Norma and I can't, I don't think the father ever gets a name. But anyway, the the original sin of this family is their marriage. So we have to talk about that. <laughs> um, <Yeah>. What <laughs> They're the beginning of all the dysfunction. Um, so the mother is an alcoholic, as we already touched on. Lee obviously inherited that from her mother. And Holly, it seems, also maybe has inherited this addiction problem from the mother. The, the father, it's suggested that he has had many affairs as well, right? That he laid everyone in stock. Um, mm. Well, he accuses her of the same thing. They accuse each other of having slept with all of Hollywood, I think. Yeah. Well, his line is one of my favorites. The theater world, but yeah. In the theater world, yeah. He said, uh, I can only hope that she was mine. We're talking about Hannah's as his daughter. Uh, you know. <laughs> right, right. And he says, you slept with every, his, or no, her father could have been anybody in actor's equity. One of my favorite <laughs> lines in the film. Um, yeah, so they're both, um, you know, I see their problems as being theatrical ones, but also maybe as um, the most obvious expressions of the kind of the root of the neuroticism that everyone in the family seems to labor under. I see the everyone's problems as being fundamentally how do I, how do I, how to put this? Sorry. Um, like these are, these are people who are very privileged and intelligent, right? So their, their neuroticism seems to be a kind of, um, they're looking too hard or too closely perhaps at what for other people would be like basic normal processes of life, right? Their neuroticism kind of emerges from them, um, overthinking or inventing problems for themselves out of their own privilege or intelligence or artistry or something like that. Uh, I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush here. Um, but I kind of, you know, I kind of feel like that's most obvious in the parents relationship where it's obvious that they love each other and they're kind of throwing these roadblocks in the way of their love for each other because they kind of, they can't deal with it. You know, so they're, mm. they're, they're, they're going out and they're having affairs or she's drinking or so, right. I think that, a lot of these characters, it kind of boils down Martha. to the fact that they can't, <laughs> yeah, right. That they just, they can't deal with something that for, for maybe a less complicated person wouldn't even be a thought. Right. Um, and so for the parents, it's like, you can't just love your wife. You can't just love your husband. You have to have all these problems, right? You have to, you have to deflect that love. Um, you have to, you can't deal with it head on. You, you're too complicated for that. You have to have other issues. Is that, and I, yeah. I mean this to be like serious, though I'm <laughs> sounding flippant in my criticism yeah. of them. I think this is a common problem, right? Yeah. Love is too much. Love is too much. So they're, they're creating enough friction in order to <clears throat> avoid collapsing into each other or something like that. Right. That's the only the way they know how to maintain separation. We kind of talked about that with... Much ado about nothing except that that witty banter maybe was a healthier version, I don't know, of, of what's happening. I mean, I think part of it is about age and part of it is about the big life that they've already had that's now behind them. At this point in the film, 
it's a really nice feeling at the beginning of the film that we get as we're introduced to all these characters really deftly because there's so many to introduce. We get introduced to everyone's characters and their problems and all in the context of this Thanksgiving scene where the parents are in the other room singing and it's a nice kind of family feel. It feels warm. It feels good. It feels like the parents have created that kind of environment for everyone, even as we discover all the complications. Mm-hmm. So right up front, we become acquainted with Lee's, the you know, problems with Frederick and her lack of a vacation or lack of money and Holly's situation on their drug problem, all the rest of it all very quickly. The mother's alcoholism, of course, you know, it all begins with Elliot's unfaithfulness, unfaithful heart is, is you know, um, we even hear about Mickey and Frederick who are not there. They, they, they come up, but all within this sort of, uh, environment that I think in the beginning, has been created by the parents and the parents sort of hover over everything. Mm-hmm. And when I, I think, I think it's Lee who says something about how, when she comes into the kitchen about how they're going down memory lane and then the sisters start talking about the mom and at least she's not drinking and, which so, so it, and and at a certain point in the film, the mother is going to return to drinking, and it's a crisis. And Hannah gets called over there. Let me just find that point. Um, uh, so this is really at the midpoint of the movie. So it's or no, it's it's it, it at least it's Hannah's midpoint of the, the midpoint of her arc, where she, where she goes over there. Um, hmm. And the mother has just tried to seduce the the salesman, according to the father. Whereas too old to, sorry, just too too old to seduce the salesman. So she got drunk. She got upset. So the two, her two big flaws come into play here. Her her desire to be still desirable at this age and flirt with people of any age and the the alcoholism. So then Mm. they get into that fight and it's a good thing we had such a talented daughter so we get the idea that hannah is in a way a kind of attempt to repair their relationship and her perfectness and wholeness right stands in distinction to that and and offsets it the the cracks in in their relationship there's that remark about how she could be anyone's (laughs) you already pointed out um and then the uh, you know you you I think the father makes a remark about you never know when she's going to fall off the wagon and humiliate everyone and the mother accuses him of being jealous of the attention mm. and he's all show how can you act if there's nothing inside to come out she was so beautiful and him so dashing and th- so now now we get into Hannah's voiceover and is that th- I think this is the only voiceover for Hannah in the film everyone has oh, is their it? voiceovers yeah. I, I think this. That- might be. Seems I don't know. Right. Yeah. So, and when I went back and to it's my about notes, somebody I was kind else. Of su- surprised because <laughs> I was looking at my notes and I'm like, oh, wait a minute, why? Who's saying this? And I realized, oh yeah, this is Hannah's voiceover. Um, mm. 
So she's thinking about her parents and describing how the mother was so beautiful and the father was so dashing. They were full of hopes that never materialized. And they loved the idea of having kids, but not of raising them. So you wonder what these hopes are that never materialized. Because I had had the sense that they had had some success and they were, I started off the speech thinking that, thinking in terms of them feeling the loss of that success as they got older and their youth and their attractiveness and all that stuff. Um, well, I, I think they're workaday actors. You know, I think that they are, the scene starts because they were going down to film a commercial for the mayor's office. That's what they said, right? I see, so, I and see, okay. Th they're, in, they're in equity, right? So they're working actors, but maybe they wanted to be, you know, Catherine Cornell and Olivier, you know, um, but they're, they're still working. You know, they, they have, um, they're the type of people that have all the stories, right. Of the great actors that they were in the company with, you know, because they played, <laughs> right. you know, right. they played third, fourth, fifth string to, you know, to the Cornells, to the whoever. Um, and so, um, so I think it's that they, they, they had the ambition to be at the peak. Yeah. So that, that sheds a lot of light on it for me. I think I didn't get that. So, but now that, yeah, that sheds that knowing that, um, sheds a light, a lot of light on the whole movie actually, but go ahead. Yeah. Well, you know, then we also have, um, you know, the father, one of the things I love about that voiceover with of Hannah's is the fact that we think that we're hearing, uh, piano on the soundtrack and it turns out to be coming from the father who started playing the piano in the other room and right. we see them right come back together over the over the piano and he's quite good um, uh, or whoever's playing it is quite good right mm. um, but uh, you know one of the things that um, that she says that that we kind of gloss over you know he's all show this is the mother talking about the father now how can you act when there's nothing inside to come out um you know, she, she calls him a non-person or a, uh, oh, a haircut that passes for a man. <laughs> <laughs> Says that, she, that he could never support them, you know? So um, it would be one thing maybe if she never had her ambitions materialized, but for the, the man in, a, in a, a marriage that must have started in the 30s or 40s, um, for a man to never become successful, for his ambitions to never materialize, that's problem and <laughs> right mm -hmm. um and so she maybe has little respect for his talent because he wasn't able to make it um no at least not in a big way well yeah and, and they've just called her hannah has just been called gifted by the parents and she ends the scene that with in her voiceover saying my gift was luck Yes, and I that's... thought Lee was the one destined for great things, and her father is at the piano at this point. And then she's the scene ends with her in this reverie, and then the next scene at the dock, which I think we see with Lee at the dock at least a couple of times. Um, Lee is in her own reverie at that point, so we get this really nice transition from Hannah's reverie into Lee's reverie. Although we we don't know exactly what she's thinking about. There's no voiceover, but we can imagine she's thinking about the Elliot situation. And, and even Hannah's reverie 
it's a little unclear what that's about exactly. You know, we we know this idea that that her gift was just luck, but that can't you know that can't be the focal point of what she's. She, she seems to be in a positive state of mind, so I don't know what she's thinking about exactly. But it's an it. Oh, it is. Oh, she says that to them. Okay, right. That's right. Yeah, yeah because the mother answers because Hannah says right. the mother says that of anyone in the family, you were the one blessed with the true gift, and then that's when Hannah deflects and she says that it was it was luck. And she always right, thought Lee right. was the one destined for great things. The mother says, she is lovely, but she doesn't have your spark. She knows it. She worships you. She wouldn't dare get up on stage, which is a shocking thing to say. And then and she mm. says like, you know, Holly's game for anything though. You know, she's like her mother. It's the, the mother saying this, like that really the mother is like Holly, which I think is right. Um, okay. So then the, Hannah's reverie is a reaction to that, I guess. Um well, it precedes that Hannah. Well, her her voiceover precedes it. Then yes, and then yeah, she and does then have she, that. You moment. get this look on her face at the end of that scene. It's just it's a close up on her face, looking angelic. Off into I think space and yeah, angelic and just then thinking about something, and then you come to Lee in the same sort of state of mind. But and, right, and so yeah. So what is Hannah thinking about in that moment? Is she is she, is she taking in her mother's praise or is she <laughs> uh, reaffirming the idea that her, her gift was always luck? I think there's something, there's a truth to that, that her, that she's actually just lucky, but I don't know what you Well, think. it's, I, I would agree with that. I think it's such a fascinating question when it comes to these, um, this is what makes acting so fascinating because in fact, um, talent helps a lot, but ultimately a lot of it is down to luck. And there are a lot of forces at work uh, which are completely outside of one's control. The, um, the idea that Hannah is the most talented one is taken for granted because she's the one with the success. Maybe she is just lucky. Uh, Holly, you know, the mother says she's game for anything. There's, there's a luck about that. Right? There's a luck that because Holly is game for anything, she can shuffle through a bunch of possible identities until she finds one that hits. Um, I think there are, I, I think this is really complex. The suggestion that the father hasn't um, fulfilled his promise, is it because he wasn't talented enough or because he wasn't lucky? Um, what constitutes luck by this definition? They seem to be pretty lucky people from where I'm sitting. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, right. They, they have a beautiful, well, it's, I think it's Hannah's apartment, but they have a kind of a beautiful life, an artistic life and um, all things considered a pretty happy marriage. Um, well, the luck is always luckier on the other side of the, uh, <laughs> of the what? Right. offense. <laughs> What would what would the luckier luck be on the other side of yeah, <clears throat> on the other side of success? But well, there's there's Lee's Lee's beauty that's luck, right? The mother's beauty, which the father I love, I love, love, love. Um, their their 
conversation. Well, that's actually the, the, the second of the three Thanksgivings because we have oh, this. Oh, is it? Okay, yeah. Yeah, we have them being a bit high at the, the first Thanksgiving, high spirits, I mean, and a, maybe a little bit precipitously high spirits. Then we have the plunge into this scene. And then they're telling stories and they're, you know, and, and he's saying these wonderful things about how she was so beautiful that men drove their cars up on the sidewalks, you know, and like, I love that. That's such a beautiful thing to say about someone. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then in the final Thanksgiving, it's when they're, he's just playing the piano and she's listening. It's a contemplative moment and it's a quiet moment. And therefore we are, we're calm. It's satisfying. It's, they seem stable. Right. Um, She's drinking and singing, and so I, 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 I like the fact that everyone's just accepted the fact that she's going to drink. <laughs> yeah, she's just, that's <laughs> it. All right, that's, uh, that's, we're going to just live with that. Who knows? Maybe it's seltzer. We, we can, we can <laughs> okay. hope. Um, that penultimate Christmas uh, Thanksgiving, though, is um, really, really a, a great moment. Their their arc seems to have been resolved by that point because he's now expressing this appreciation of her. She's expressing appreciation of him. We see the the evidence of this and the, the photographs of them looking very mm-hmm. lovely as young people. Um, and so, you know, we believe these stories. And uh, of course she's, you know, of course they're both actors. So also we know what they looked like when they were younger. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, anyway, I just, I love that. I love that scene. I love what he says about how beautiful she was. It's like such a dream romance, you know? I mean, they they're... They're workaday actors. They toughed it out, but man, they still love each other, and they have those fond memories of how beautiful and wonderful they were when they were younger. So he's more than just a haircut, an expensive haircut at that. Um. <laughs> I think I think that's why I wanted to make them out to be more successful than they than they were, um, because the, there's such a element of nostalgia in their memories, and uh, which is a part of their their singing and playing the piano and all that so and that nostalgia we talked a little bit about the role of nostalgia in love and woody allen films in um annie hall but there seems to be some of that here as well and in fact i think elliot takes on that position of nostalgia at the very end of the film when he's kind of mourning and looking back on his Mm affair with Lee. It sounds a lot like Alvy Singer and Annie Hall looking back at his relationship with with Annie and thinking about their good times together, although there's not there's not that same montage type of montage with Elliot. But he he says, you know, he sees her and the professor and instead of being jealous, he says, Oh Lee, you are something. You know, you look so beautiful. Marriage agrees with you. Everything that happened between us seems more and more hazy. I acted like a fool. And then that line that I've already read about uh, complete conviction that I couldn't live without you. And then I put us both through the ringer. So he's sorry about that. His love for for Hannah. So he he moves from a position of passion, you know, and and the kind of passion that's involved in infidelity to this nostalgic position, which is more a position of mourning and and reflection, and he, and perhaps the kind of reverie in which Lee and 
Hannah have been engaged. Although I think, again, Lee's reverie on the dock was had something to do with she was holding the E. E. Cummings book at that point, and, and probably thinking about Elliot. But, but in any case, I think that that movement from from passion to nostalgia in the end is is important. I, I agree with everything you're saying, and I I also think that the success of that movement contributes to the success that we get. That they were, yeah, just as we're already discussed. I think you know they're living in a successful way. Like they are um, the parents integrating. Yes, the parents. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think that they're creating they, an environment that's beautiful for the whole family. I think the thesis in Nanny Hall was that the, the that nostalgia, in some sense, is required to sustain love. There's a way in which one must look back on the past and what's what's lost and and. The, as the relationship changes, there's a lot of loss. There's a lot of loss. It's you know you lose your looks and your youth and and all that, and you and you probably have lost out on completely fulfilling your ambitions. And then the relationship itself has been transformed. It's there's no longer the same infatuation in all likelihood. There's been a lot of conflict and friction. And so to sustain the relationship, you have to be able to look back on all that and not feel it, not, not chafe against that, but in a way long for it. And there's got to be a kind of bittersweet feeling in relation to the past and what is what one has lost in the in the past and not defiance, not I am going to fix this and have an affair with a younger woman like Elliot or not a younger woman necessarily that I guess he, she is quite a bit younger, but in any, any case, you know, have, have an affair outside of my marriage or do whatever it is I can do to reclaim the past that I've lost. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You've got to have some kind of reconciliation with, with that. And I think nostalgia is, is what helps with that. I think so too. I think, I think it also, I think, um, you know, in long-term relationships that the, the kind of steadier, more sustaining love is what sets in. It's not going to be infatuation, but you can recall, you know, the infatuation is the thing that one can be nostalgic about while still having hopefully that sort of like, you know, the deeper current of the history, the shared experience, the, the love, right. But the ability, I think, to become nostalgic about those about that extreme infatuation, the, the the height of that passion, and to keep that, you know, integrated into one's memory is like, um, yeah, to me that shows the the health of the relationship at that point. For really, from that point forward, um, absolutely, yeah. I mean, you can be connected through infatuation in the present, but you can have a deeper connection in a way, a more realistic loving connection that involves memories of the, those infatuated moments. It doesn't mm. mean that you can completely recapture that feeling, but you think about how nice it was to have had those feelings and they can inform the more stable, realistic sort of love that, that is there, uh, you know, after decades thinking thinking through that comment that he makes about 
men driving up on the sidewalks, I think what makes that so effective is he's not even necessarily talking about his own infatuation. He's giving her, I, I, it's such a beautiful moment because what she wants is this idea that she's desirable, period. You know, like not necessarily to him, right? She doesn't want to, this is someone who put great store in her looks. She was probably like a Lee when she was younger in terms of the way other people related to her. And so what his compliment does is show how well he knows her that what she wants to be validated about is the fact that everyone thought she was beautiful, yeah. you know, <laughs> right? And um, yeah, and that's, you know, that's very, very sweet because then she gets to feel um, loved in the way that she wants to be loved. And he also gets to be the center of attention by telling this grand story about how, you know, and he gets to be the victor, right? Everyone loved her. Everyone thought she was beautiful, but he was the one who got her. So it's like, you know, it's just this absolutely beautiful uh, resolution um, of the difficulties that she has, which is, am I still desirable to men? Um, and of uh, putting himself in a position of power. Yes, she is, and I'm the one who got her. And, and they're interdependent uh, in that way on each other's, um, on validating each other and uh, resolving those you know, they, 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 they resolve well those difficulties that each, each of them has um, in that moment. So, yeah, I love that. Uh, that's one of my favorite um, moments in a film that has a, like a tremendous amount of poignant moments. Um, and then the last 10 minutes of the film from uh, Mickey's, uh, you know, near-death experience with the gun through the Marx Brothers film and to the, the end of the, um, of the, the, Thanksgiving scene when Holly tells him that she's pregnant. That's maybe my favorite 10 minute chunk of a movie ever. I love that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that those last 10 minutes, even though Woody Allen has said that it's um, too idealistic, that he wasn't brave enough to go for the sucker punch of, I guess everybody, you know, having a tragic ending. I think that's the worst thing <laughs> he could have ever done. It's terrible. I mean, the whole... Yeah, it's a sweet ending. Yes, okay, I'm pregnant. It seems pretty cliched. He pulls it off in a wonderful way. I mean, the, the, the whole thing is, yeah, it's sweet and it's wonderful. And the whole movie is superb. I mean, it really in, illustrates what a, in, in so many different details that we haven't even discussed, what a fantastic screenwriter Woody Allen can be. Now, he can, <laughs> he can be horrible too, which I do not understand because this is, <laughs> movie is you know near perfection like um yeah truly and i feel like i i you know i haven't fully appreciated it until this moment coming back to it you know just at this age well for me you know i don't know that it's his best but i think that the reason why it's my favorite is because of the optimism in the ending i think of his of his great films this is the only one that has what can be called a truly optimistic ending. Hmm. And, um, you know, there's this, there's an experience in the, in that, um, in that final moment of like a catharsis for all of the, um, nostalgic, unsettled, bittersweet endings that preceded it, you know, and then he kind of, then in his great films after this film, I think just go, you know, dark all the way, like crimes and misdemeanors or, um, 
even Deconstructing Harry, which I think is a, a great film of his and um you know match point and and these other films much much darker so i think this one um that's why that's why this one is my favorite because it um it's so life affirming or something you mm -hmm. know some 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 terrible <laughs> some terrible term i could use there that's a little silly and right but it but it is um it fulfills the the optimism and the the you know the the happiness maybe that's lacking from the others and then it's this beautiful brilliant moment before the plunge into tragedy of the later films so yeah well put you know he's coming out he has a new film out that's it's a in french with french actors did you see the yeah i i'm a little skeptical at this I, I think he should really hang it up because he's not going to get great people working with him anymore and really you know that was god what's your face Catherine Deneuve is that you no way really yeah um okay I think okay let's look at who's in this the film is called coup de chance stroke of luck um and it has, uh, let's see. No, I guess I'm wrong. And, and damn, even, I was so excited. Is she even alive? I mean, she could be for all I know. Oh, she's of course even, she's alive. She, I mean, you would know I that. Just... I, I wouldn't have any even the faintest idea, but, uh, Okay, so I I don't know I don't know where I got that I I was reading press about this and somehow her name came up and maybe she comp I think maybe she defended or complimented him or something like that but but sure. in any case I think um, I don't know as long as the films are good I don't care who he's working with the, the problem is the the spotty quality at this point but it's his fiftieth film and more power to him and I it's a travesty that you know. It's a crime that that he's been ostracized in this way. But see, I think his his films are so dependent on, you know, he's an actor's director, and I think um, the quality of his films is so dependent on the quality of the performances. Um, I mean, as I say that, I think well, you know, the flaws in his bad films are not the performances; it's the scripts, right? Um, but still, I think that what I go to Woody Allen film for is to see, hopefully, a great script in combination with great performances by great actors. And so, the more he has to kind of scrape the bottom of the barrel to find people who will populate his films, the less confidence I have that it's going to be an enjoyable film for me. Um, yeah, I don't know that uh, these are. These are French actors, so they may, I don't know where they stand in the French film world. Yeah, but, sure. But I Part imagine of it, I, it, they might be near the top, I don't know. But. Right. Yeah. Part of it is the familiarity, too, of the people that he, he tends to get up until a certain point. You know, like uh, whatever, seeing Kate Blanchett give a career best performance in Blue Jasmine or, you know, who, like that's, that's part of the appeal for me is to see people I already like in a Woody Allen film. Um, so it's, you know, this is probably not something I'm gonna, I'm gonna see unless I'm, I'm really attracted to one of the actors in it. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I don't mean attracted in that way. I mean, <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> yeah. 
That's why <laughs> forget I what I said. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm. I mean, compelled by their <laughs> their persona. Just yeah, I get shut it. Up. I get it. <laughs> I deserve that. Um, anyway. All right. On that note. Well. <laughs> which next we're going to do Winner's Tale. I don't know if I'm attracted to anyone in that one, though. To that, it's going to be all Woody Allen and Shakespeare from here on out on this show. So Sounds great to me. <laughs> all right. Thank you. <laughs> thank you.